Well, hey, New Life Fellowship, uh, thanks for joining us today for worship. Uh, if you're new here, I just have one announcement, which is we have a newcomer Zoom meeting at 1.30 p.m. every single Sunday. And so if you're new, I, I would personally love to get to know you. And so please do consider joining us in our newcomer uh, meeting over Zoom at 1.30 p.m. If you can't join us today, consider joining us next week or the following week because it happens every single week. Uh, I have two other announcements that I want to make as well before we jump into today's sermon. First is this, uh, if you are, are blessed by this worship service and you love it, uh, please consider sharing this on your social media feed, or if you're watching this on YouTube or listening to this on podcast later, uh, consider sharing this with friends or family members uh, if this blesses you. Uh, and the reason why is because technology has made it really simple for us to share our faith. And it's really a simple click of a button and really sharing these services uh, and really sharing the love of Christ uh, through technology. Uh, third and lastly, uh, we have a really, really big event coming up, and we want to invite the entire church out to this. Uh, we understand there's still a pandemic happening, so if you're not comfortable, um, you know, don't feel obligated to come at all. But, uh, you know, every now and again, churches uh, do really big events, um, and some churches decide to do retreats or conferences. Our church uh, decided to do a missions event, and what we're doing is we're going to be serving the North Shore Senior Center by actually cleaning up their campus. And so all of the work will be done outdoors. We'll be masked up. We'll be safe in that way. Uh, but we want this to be a church-wide initiative. We want to involve our whole church in cleaning up um, uh, the North Shore Senior Center uh, because they don't have enough money. They don't have enough funds to hire a grounds crew to take care of the several campuses that they have. And so we as a church wanted to chip in and really volunteer and help out this nonprofit. And so uh, if you can, please join us uh, on, on September 19th, uh, which is when this takes place, uh, and consider volunteering your time and effort. And if you'd like to do that, in our chat box, there will be a little sign up there for the North Shore Senior Center clean up. Well, that's all the announcements that we have for today. If you can, would you open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1? We're going to finish up Daniel chapter 1 by reading verses 8 to 21. Uh, Daniel chapter 1 uh, verses 8 to 21. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version uh, of the Bible. So if you have that version of the Bible, you can open up to that. Or if not, uh, it'll be literally right up here on the screens uh, for you. Daniel chapter 1, uh, 8 to 21. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are, who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these youths, four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before 
Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Father, we thank you, uh, God, for preserving Daniel's story for us. God, we're so grateful that you were faithful in his life. And Lord, we pray that you would continuously be faithful to your people today, your church. Lord, as we engage our culture, would you open up our hearts and our eyes to, to see and to hear, God, what it is that you have to say to us. And Lord, would you bless my mouth as I speak your words, your pure and holy and true words today. Lord, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, you can go ahead and be seated uh, at home. Well, you know, we've been in this uh, series in the book of Daniel, and I've been really, really excited preparing for these messages. Uh, and we entitled this series called Rethink. Rethink. And the reason why we've entitled it Rethink is because we want to rethink some of the relevant cultural issues of today through the lens of old biblical doctrines. And this is what I believe that the book of Daniel actually helps us to do, is to rethink some of these cultural narratives that we hear today. And today we're asking this really tough question, and it'll appear right up here on the screens for you, but it's this. How far can we engage our culture without compromising our convictions? Let me say that again. How far can we engage our culture without compromising our convictions? In other words, where do we draw the line? Let me give you a quick illustration of this question. Uh, when I was in uh, Hawaii growing up, uh, during my senior year of high school, I was on fire for Jesus. I loved Jesus. I was serving Jesus. All I wanted to do was be at church for Jesus. Uh, and then I decided to move to Seattle, Washington, to attend the University of Washington. And literally, I remember the first night I was here, I was invited out to a party where I knew underage drinking would be happening, where marijuana usage would be uh, abundant, and where you know uh, loud rap music and music with cursing and rock music would all be there. And so, me being an innocent, uh, you know, person and not wanting to sin, the question popped into my head: Can I go to this? You know, I'm, I'm not going to partake in any of the alcohol. I won't smoke any of the marijuana. You know, you know I'll, I'm not going to ingest all this music. I, but can I go to this? Is it okay for me as a Christian just to simply go to a party without partaking in any of the party things? Uh, or here's another, right? When I was growing up, my dad, as I mentioned in other sermons, wasn't a Christian. Uh, and so when he wasn't a Christian, he decided to start selling some cigarettes at his store. Uh, and he did this and it made a pretty good profit and whatnot. But then my dad converted and he became a Christian. And when he became a Christian, he had to ask himself this question, can a Christian uh, be a Christian and still sell cigarettes? There are other questions like this, right? Can I listen to secular music? Uh, can I watch secular movies? Uh, do I have to be a pastor to honor God with my work? And again, let me ask this question, how far can we engage our culture without compromising our convictions? Now, Erwin Lutzer, he's a, a pastor emeritus at Moody Bible Church, 
and um, which just means that he used to be the lead pastor there, but he's also an author, theologian. And he wrote a book talking about how we can actually engage our culture. And he talks about really three things, and these three things will serve as our points. These are three ways in which Christians uh, engage our culture. Uh, to, the first two are fallacies, and the last uh, is how we should be engaging our culture. And, and here's our three points. If you're taking notes, you can write these three things down. The first point is isolation. Uh, the second point is assimilation, and the last point is infiltration without contamination. So isolation, assimilation, and then inf infiltration without contamination. Those are our three points for today. You write those three things down. Let's go ahead and dive into our first point, isolation. You know, the first way we engage culture is actually by isolating ourselves from culture. And again, as I mentioned, this is not the proper way in which Christians should be conducting themselves when it comes to culture. Uh, and, and, and this view says some, something like this, culture is dirty. Culture is sinful. Culture is evil. So you need to run away, stay away from it from all uh, possible means. And so, uh, you know, in the fourth century in Rome, uh, there was an invention of something called monasteries, okay? And these monasteries were invented in the fourth century because Christians were actually saying this very thing. They were looking at their cities and they were saying, oh my goodness, this, the cities are so evil, filled with prostitution, filled with lust, filled with violence and chaos. Uh, you know, in order for us to live pure and holy lives, we have to isolate ourselves. We have to run away from our cities. We have to run away from our culture and go out into the deserts and just only do Christian things. And this is the only way in which we can live faithful and holy lives. And although this was a fallacy, and we know this now because we studied scripture and we know history, uh, this mentality has actually seeped into the modern Christian faith life. The best Christians are the ones who are at church all the time. They only do Christian things. In fact, they have little Christian huddles where they only do Christian. They're hidden away from the world because they're at church all the time. They serve at church. They pray at church. They go to community groups at church. All they do is they go to church all the time because they want to hide themselves away from the evil, evil world and the evil, evil culture that's out there. You know, one example of this is Halloween. It's Halloween. I remember growing up uh, in, in a church and uh, this church uh, thought, and, and I was told at a young age that Halloween is Satan's birthday. So you dare not celebrate that, <laughs> that birthday. Uh, and so what churches did, including mine, was they created a, a second night or they created a sub night, right? In which they called Hallelujah Night or they might call it Harvest Festival, right? In which basically they, they hide themselves away from the world. They create their own night in which basically they do the same thing as everyone else is doing in culture, which is to get candy, to get dressed up, and to play games and to do those things. But they just do it at church. They do it with only Christians. They do it in this closed Christian bubble because the world is evil, church is holy, therefore you can only do holy things at church. You can't do it in culture. Uh, in fact, when I was in college, I remember doing only Christian things, hanging out with only Christian people. Uh, my, my days were filled up with serving at church, being at church, being around Christians, only listening to worship music. And, and we do this very often where we close ourselves off from the world by simply hanging out and only doing Christian things. We have our own little Christian bubbles where everything is Christian. You know, I remember even as a kid being told not to buy certain products. I remember being told, hey, you can't buy Harry Potter. Why? Because it was written by Satan. <laughs> I kind of joke about that, but it's true. This is what Christians were saying. Uh, hey, don't buy Crest. Buy Colgate. 
because Crest is from Satan, Colgate is uh, from Jesus because Colgate, uh, the, the, the owner or the CEO, whatever, he's a believer, so you buy Colgate. Uh, I remember hearing that, you know, don't buy Procter & Gamble because Procter & Gamble is from Satan. Uh, you should buy other things, but don't buy from Procter & Gamble. Uh, don't watch Netflix because Netflix is from Satan. Only watch from this very obscure thing called Pure Flix, which is the Christian equivalent of Netflix where they have a bunch of Christian movies, uh, such famous Christian movies as God's Not Dead and God's Not Dead Part 2. Uh, these are the only movies you can watch, right? Pastor Jason Park, who <clears throat> came up here and spoke a, a, a few times now for us, um, in one of his sermons, he details how Christians are actually like oxen. Uh, and, and what he means by this is this, if, if you ever look at oxen, the way in which they protect themselves is by actually huddling together. They, they put their heads all in together like this. They stick their butts out to the world. They bring their young ones into the center of the circle in order to protect themselves. And in some sense, this is what Christians have done with culture. We, we all huddle together. We create these little Christian bubbles where we only do Christian things. We separate ourselves from the world. We isolate ourselves from the world. And we say, uh, no, no culture, only Christian things. And yet this is a fallacy. This is not how we are supposed to engage in our culture. Look at what the book of Daniel says. Daniel doesn't isolate himself from culture. He doesn't block himself from culture. Look at what Daniel does. Okay? First, Daniel serves a satanic king. He serves a satanic king. This is crazy. King Nebuchadnezzar, as I mentioned last week, was a violent and vicious king. He was known for dashing babies against walls. That's how vicious and violent he is. And yet in Daniel chapter 4, what we'll come to find is that Daniel actually praises King Nebuchadnezzar and actually says, I work for the prosperity of this king. See, he doesn't hide himself away. He doesn't isolate himself. He actually works for the prosperity of the king and of the city. Here's a second thing that Daniel does. Daniel actually has his name changed from Daniel to Belshazzar. You have to understand this. Daniel in the Hebrew means God is my judge. Do you know what Belshazzar means? Belshazzar means Bel's prince. Bel is a name for Marduk, who was a demonic god. So basically what happens here is Daniel changes his name from God is my judge to now Satan is my prince. And he allows that ha to change that to happen. The king renames him this and he's, he allows it. Third, Daniel learns Babylonian culture. Okay, this is shocking. Okay, in verse 4, which is our passage actually from last week, but let me just detail it here. It says this, they were youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. I want you to underline that, literature and language of the Chaldeans. Every scholar across the board that I read said this, that the language and the learning of the, the literature of the Chaldeans meant sorcery, divination, the occult. These are the things that Daniel was learning about. He was learning about sorcery, divination, the occult. This is what he was learning. And yet, according to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and 1 Samuel chapter 28, it tells us strictly in the Bible that these things are prohibited. You're not to study sorcery or divination or magic or sorcery or any of these types of things. You're not supposed to perform these things. And yet, Daniel studies it. 
Look what at Larry Osborne, he's a pastor in California, and look at what he says. He says, Babylon was also known for its demonic influences. The state-sponsored religion was satanic, and the core curriculum in the school of higher learning included a large dose of the astrology and the occult. In fact, if you read Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah, if you don't know, was a contemporary of Daniel's, meaning that they lived at virtually the same time. And he lived during the Babylonian exile. And look at what Jeremiah says in chapter 29, verses 4 to 7. Jeremiah says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so he's addressing this to all the exiles that are living in Babylon. He says, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and, and give your daughters in, in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And then verse 7, look at what God says. He says this, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For it, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That word welfare means shalom, peace. Seek the peace of the city. See, for many of us, some of us, we get angry at culture. We get angry at the, at the hedonism of our day. We get upset at the laws that are getting more liberal and more progressive. And so we throw our hands up in the air. We get angry. And yet God tells us through the prophet Daniel and through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, don't get angry. He says, seek to serve the city. Be in the cities. Be in culture. Engage in it. Don't run away from it. Don't isolate yourself. Be in it and seek the prosperity and the welfare of the city. Don't get angry at culture, don't isolate yourself from culture, but serve the culture. Be in it, engage it, learn it. So then what, Eric? What are you trying to say, huh? Just, just live in the world, just do whatever, you know, don't live a holy and consecrated life upon, you know, for the Lord? I'm glad you asked that hypothetical question, my friend, um, because that actually leads us nicely uh, into our second point, assimilation. Okay, assimilation. Uh, the second way in which we, uh, many interact with culture, again, this is a fallacy, is actually by assimilating into the culture of our day. It's by assimilating into it. Uh, you know what superpowers such as Assyria and Babylon used to do is they would go into these nations, they would attack these nations, and they would essentially try to gobble up these nations alive. In other words, they would try to put these nations into extinction. They would commit genocide. And yet, this was one of the, the things that they were really good and genius at doing. They, they were really, really good at committing genocide. This is why, right, I don't know if you've read through your Bibles before, but in, in the Old Testament, oftentimes there are different races of people that are mentioned that no longer exist today. For example, right, you hear about the Hittites or the Perizzites or the Jebusites or the Midianites, right? But have you ever met a modern-day Midianite? Have you ever met a modern-day Perizzite or Hittite? You've never met them. Why? Because they're extinct. They no longer exist. Why? Because Assyria and Babylon gobbled them up. They're extinct. They no longer exist. And the way in which Assyria and Babylon would go about leading people into extinction was actually very ingenious. The first thing that they would do is they would actually exile their people from their motherland. They would separate them from the customs and laws and traditions that they knew, and they would import them into a brand new place with brand new language, brand new culture, brand new everything, and they would make them learn the language, the culture, and the customs, and the religions of their motherland. 
The second thing they would do is they would intermarry. They would take your deepest relationships and turn them into foreign relationships. Lastly, they would show you the delicacies of their world. Right? Because think about it, Assyria and Babylon were the superpowers of the, of the day. They were like the America of today. Right? Compare America to a third world country. We have so many more resources. Our cities are so much cleaner, so much better, so much better food. Right? So imagine moving from a third world country to a first world country like America. You would be amazed right, at the lights, at the cleanness, at the amount of food that we have. And you'd be taken by all of these things. And this is how Babylon and Assyria put you out of ex into extinction. They would essentially gobble you up by assimilation. They would make you forget about your culture, about your tradition, about your language, about where you came from, so that you would slowly be ingrained into their society. And Daniel and the Israelites, mind you, have seen this happen time and time again. In fact, if you don't know, in his Israelite history, they split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Daniel is from the southern kingdom, but Daniel has seen his northern kingdom brothers and sisters be gobbled up alive by the Assyrians. The Syrians come in there and they do exactly this. There are no northern tribes of Israel in, in existence anymore. There are only southern tribes in existence, and there were only two, Judah and Benjamin. Those are the only two that are around. Why? Because all the ten northern tribes were gobbled up by Assyria, and they are extinct today. And so if you're Daniel, and you're exiled, and you're in Babylon, what's your fear? What are you most afraid of? Well, I'll tell you what you're most afraid of. You're most afraid of being gobbled up like your northern brothers and sisters. You're afraid of forgetting your God, forgetting your language, forgetting your customs, forgetting your laws, forgetting who God is all together. See, this is why Daniel will learn the culture of the Babylonians. He'll learn sorcery and about the occult, but he will never participate in the occult. He'll serve his city, he'll serve his nation, he'll serve his king, but he won't eat their foods. He won't defile himself. And this is why in verse 8, look at what verse 8 says, right? But Daniel resolved... Right, that word resolve actually more you know, specifically means he purposed in his heart. In his heart, he made a firm stance that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drunk. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. See, the meats that Daniel was given was unclean. We don't know why exactly these meats were unclean, but we know that they were unclean. It could have been because they were offered up to idols. It could have been because they were prepared in an unholy way. But whatever the case was, they were unholy and they were unclean for Daniel to eat. But here's the odd thing. Wine was actually okay for Jews to drink. So then why does Daniel like, not take the wine? And this has actually puzzled scholars a bit because, again, wine is good. It's okay for Jews to drink wine. It's okay for people to drink wine. It's not unclean to drink wine. But here's why Daniel doesn't take the wine. This is why he doesn't take the meat. This is why he doesn't practice the occult or the sorcery, although he learns about it, is because of this. It is the first step to assimilation. It's the first step for him forgetting his God. See, because Daniel has now been separated from his homeland. He's been separated from what he knows and now he's in this strange foreign country that has beautiful food, has this Babylonian buffet that's being offered up to him and he doesn't want to forget his God. And so Daniel says no to the Babylonian buffet and says yes to God. He resolves in his heart, he purposes it in his heart. Do you know what I think the Babylonian buffet is today in our modern day context? 
I think it's the American dream. I think it's money, power, success, fame, comfort and pleasure, love and approval, sex. I think these are all things that will help us to assimilate and forget about God. And here's my question is this, are we in the process of being gobbled up? Are we in the process of assimilation into this great nation of America? Because you see, just like Daniel, we're foreigners. If you call yourself a Christian, this land of America is a foreign land to you. Why? Because we are citizens of heaven. That's our homeland. And yet we live here as exiles, not connected to our motherland. And in some sense, we are being assimilated every single day into this culture. Do we not still live in this cycle of exile and assimilation? Right? Paul, in his letter, says that this world is not our own. We don't belong here. Just like Daniel didn't belong in Babylon, we don't belong here. Look, we are constantly being assimilated and forgetting about God constantly. You know, I don't know if I've told this story, but a long time ago I was doing children's ministry, and I remember asking all the kids in the room, saying, hey, does anybody know who Abraham is? And all the kids had this, like, dumbfounded look on their face, like they didn't know who Abraham was. And finally this one kid raised his hand, he said, and so I called on him, he said, are you talking about Abraham Lincoln? Our kids don't even know who Father Abraham is anymore. Look, we, we are forgetting our Bibles. Even for us, do we even know the stories of God? Look, I would argue, I would contend that mo more of us know more about the Marvel Cinematic Universe or about Star Wars than we do about the Bible. Why? Because we're slowly assimilating and we're slowly forgetting. Is it a surprise then that young people aren't coming to church anymore? If we're forgetting, how will our kids remember? How will the next generation remember? Because here's what's happened. We've eaten at the feast of this American buffet called success, called power, called comfort. And this has become a new religion for us. And in the name of success, in the name of, of becoming comfortable, in the name of sex and all of these different things, we will forget and we will assimilate slowly into this culture and slowly forget about who God is. And we see it. We see it in our biblical illiteracy. We see it in the fact that we don't pray and we work more and more than ever. So how do we stop this process of assimilation? We do what Daniel did. We purpose in our hearts. We draw clear lines where we will participate and where we won't. We are to be in our culture, but we are not to assimilate into it. We need to be in our world and in our culture, but we are not to, to, to assimilate into it. Like Daniel, we have to purpose in our hearts. We have to draw lines to live an uncompromising life. This is what makes Daniel so special is that Daniel purposes in his heart. He draws clear lines of living an uncompromised life. And look, that really begins by knowing the Word of God. How can you live an uncompromising life if you don't even know your Bibles? How, do, how are you supposed to live an uncompromising life if you don't even know what's being said in Scripture? How are you supposed to live an uncompromising life when you don't even know the require, requirements that God has for you? Start there. Pick up your Bible. Start reading it again. And then resolve in your hearts to be uncompromising, unwavering in the truths that God has given to you. Don't compromise on your sexual ethic. The world says you can do anything you want with your body, but the Bible says, look, God has created us in this particular way, in this way where He wants us to use our sex and our body in a very 
special and particular way. And we have to be uncompromising in that area of sexuality. Don't compromise on your belief in sin and in hell, even though those doctrines are unpopular to our culture. Don't compromise on fighting for injustice. Don't compromise for fighting for the weak and for the vulnerable. Don't compromise fighting for black lives. They need our hearts and our voices to be constantly praying and fighting for the injustice that their community faces. Don't compromise on abortion. Unborn babies also need our hearts and our voices to be constantly praying and fighting for that injustice. Don't compromise the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Don't compromise your judgment. Don't give it up for alcohol and for drugs. Don't compromise. Draw clear lines. Yes, you learn. Yes, you engage. Yes, you are in the culture. You serve the city. But do not ever compromise. Purpose in your hearts. Look, do you draw hard lines in your life or do you purpose in your heart to not do something? to not even budge an inch on it, or are you looking for how much you can do before it becomes a sin? Let me say that again. Are you looking for how much you can do before it becomes a sin? See, I think instead of drawing hard lines, you know what we do? We, we look for as far as we can go before it becomes a sin. Like how much can I touch this girl or touch this guy before it actually becomes sex? Like how much can I drink so that it's not actually becoming drunk? How much can I work before it's called being a workaholic? How much church do I have to do in order to be called a good Christian? We always look for that minimum bare requirement instead of drawing hard lines and living an uncompromising life. Listen to what Russell Moore says. Uh, Russell Moore, he's a pastor, and he, he says in his book, Onward, Engaging Culture Without Losing the Gospel, he says a Christianity, and this is kind of a summary of what we're saying here, a Christianity that is walled off from the culture around it is a Christianity that dies. However, he goes on to say this, a Christianity that is without friction in the culture is a Christianity that dies. Such religion absorbs the ambient culture until it is indistinguishable from it, until eventually a culture asks what the point is of the whole thing. See what he's saying? Look, if we, if we get walled off from our culture, Christianity dies. If we, if, we live, if we live without friction in our culture, then Christianity dies as well. You know, um, John MacArthur, he's, he's a pastor in, uh, in California. He, he tells a story of a gentleman named Eric Lydell. And I want you to hear the uncompromising life that Eric Lydell has. He says this, For months, Eric Lydell trained as a track athlete for the purpose of winning the 100-meter race in the Olympics of 1924. Sports writers all over the country predicted that Lydell would win the 100 meters. And then he learned that the 100 meter race in 1924 in the Olympics was scheduled for Sunday. This, this posed the problem. Eric believed that he could not honor God by running in the contest on the Lord's Day. His fans were stunned by his refusal. Some who had praised him began to call him a fool. And the press laughed at Eric Lydell because he wouldn't run on Sunday. And I know what you're thinking. Many of you who are you know, Christians are probably thinking, well, that, that's, a, that's a little bit too far. You, you draw. But friends, this is the kind of life we have to live. Yes, we are to be in culture. We are to engage culture. We are to serve culture. We are to serve our cities and serve our workplaces, serve our bosses and do all those things. But, but then we draw hard lines in the sand and say, I'm not going to live a compromised life anymore. Because friends, if you live a compromised life, then what's the difference between you and the world? The Bible tells us that we're to be different. We're to be holy. We're to be set apart. 
How can we be a distinct people, a heavenly people, when we're nothing different than the world is? It takes an uncompromising life, so distinct and so separate, to actually live in this culture. This leads us to our last and final point, infiltration without contamination. Infiltration without contamination. You know, if you look carefully at isolation and assimilation, uh, they're both really trying to solve this one problem. They're really trying to get at this one problem, and it's simply this. It's persecution. They're trying to escape persecution. See, the reason why we isolate ourselves off from culture is because we don't want to be persecuted by culture. And so we build these barriers, these walls, like, like the oxen, where we put our heads and we try to protect ourselves from persecution. And yet, when we, when we assimilate into culture, what we're trying to do is we're trying to protect ourselves from persecution as well. We don't want culture to rub up against us. We don't want culture to, to, to have to, we don't want any friction. And so we just give in and we say, okay, I'll, I'll assimilate, I'll do whatever. But look, look at the book of Daniel. Look at the story. Look, when we read the book of Daniel and his story, we, you might think this, and, and I certainly thought this, right? Look at how nice Daniel's life is. Right, like the story ends so well. Right, Daniel lives this uncompromised life. He draws the line in the sand. He says, "I'm not going to eat the foods," and then he he gets fatter. Right, he has this Daniel fast, right, where he only eats vegetables and drinks water, and then the Bible tells us that he gets fatter actually instead of losing weight. In fact, just a just a little side note, but I know there are many of you in here who have participated in the Daniel fast, which is when you only drink water and eat vegetables. Um, but a true Daniel fast would be you eat vegetables and drink water, but you actually gain weight. You don't actually lose weight. A lot of you folks in here pro have probably done the Daniel fast to lose weight, uh, but a true biblical Daniel fast would be you, you actually get fatter, right? Because if you look at verse 15, right, it says that he's fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So, you know, that's a little sidetrack, but... But, but it's, it's a nice happily ever after ending for Daniel. Right? He lives this uncompromising life. He draws a line in the sand and he's saved ultimately. And yet we know at the deepest parts of our hearts, we know that this is not how life works. Right? Sure, Daniel and his friends escape persecution this time. Sure, Daniel escapes the lion's den. We'll find that out later on. Uh, sure, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego escape the fire. But look, every other person that's been thrown into the lion's den has been eaten alive. Every other Christian that's been thrown into a lion's den has been martyred. Every other Christian that's been thrown into a fire has been burned alive. Even Eric Lydell, he ends up losing his life in China. He becomes a missionary in China. He continuously lives this uncompromising life. And guess what? He gets killed because of it. So where is our comfort? How does the book of Daniel provide us comfort? Because it almost seems like the book of Daniel is sort of unrealistic. Where do we get the courage to live an uncompromising life when we know that not everyone's story ends like Daniel? I want you to look at two verses, and these are for your comfort. Look at verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. I want you to underline, and God gave and God gave Daniel favor and compassion. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. I want you to underline that again. God gave them. Do you see the comfort in this story? The comfort in this story is not that if you do this, then God will save you and give you a happily ever after. It's this. It's that God is ultimately in control of everything. See, the comfort that you and I have in life is not the fact 
that God's going to give you this happily ever after like the Daniel story, but it's the fact that God is sovereignly in control of all things. Let me give you a silly illustration of this, right? One of my favorite directors of all time is this gentleman known as Christopher Nolan, right? He directed uh, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, Dark Knight Returns, uh, Inception, right? All of these very really good movies. And I remember when I first saw the preview for this brand new movie that's coming out called Tenet, right? It's Christopher Nolan's brand new movie. And I remember as soon as I saw that preview, as soon as it said from director Christopher Nolan, I was like, I'm going to watch this movie. I don't even care what. I end up watching the rest of the preview. And like all of Christopher Nolan's movies, his, the previews are, are hor horrible. They don't tell you anything about the movie. You don't even know what the heck the movie's about. And yet I purposed in my heart to go watch that movie. Why? Because Christopher Nolan's going to direct it. And I know Christopher Nolan is a good director. And at the end of the day, he's going to make a really great movie, even though I don't understand what the heck's happening. And in the same way, you may stand up for Christ, but the comfort is not that God will give you happily ever after, but it's that God is in control and that at some time God will work it for His glory and for your good. You see, you have to trust that God is good and that He's in control, and this brings us comfort. Not the fact that God saves you from all of this pain and persecution. You know, I, I want to read something else from Russell Moore. Listen to what Russell Moore goes on to say, okay? He says this in the same book. He says, years ago, I happened upon a te television program of a prosperity gospel preacher with perfectly coughed mauve hair perched on a rhinestone-spackled golden throne talking about how wonderful it is to be a Christian. Even if Christianity proved to be untrue, she said, she would still want to be a Christian because it's the best way to live. And then he says this, it occurred to me that that is an easy perspective to have on television from a golden throne. It's a much more difficult perspective to have if one is being crucified by one's neighbor in Sudan for refusing to repudiate the name of Christ. Then, it then if it turns out to not be true, it seems to be a crazy way to live. See, here's what I'm trying to say is that if you stand up for Christ, if you live an un uncompromising life, God's, God's not going to give you a, a technically a better life. The Christian is to live a hard life at times. We're called to live a persecuted life. And life is going to be difficult at times. See, we're not Christians because this it's the best way to live. I mean, to some degree, yes, God created us and He knows how we're wired. But in another sense, the reason why we're Christians is not because it's, it's going to be an easy, easy life. There, there's going to be persecution. And yet our comfort is the fact is this, that God is ultimately in control that God has a purpose to everything. And because God has a purpose to everything, we can endure the pain for today. I've talked about this. Look, pain without purpose is, is, is the pain that we don't like. But, but pain with purpose, that pain we can endure. That pain we can have comfort in. Why? Because we know that there's a purpose at the end of that pain. This is why you can work out, right? The reason why you put pain onto your body is because you know there's a purpose to that pain. You know that in the end you're going to get a six-pack of abs and so you can endure that pain. In the same way, the reason why we can have comfort is because God is in control. And because God is in control, we know that there's a purpose to everything that happens. God's not always going to give you a better life when you follow Him. But we can be assured of this, that at the end of time, when all is said and done, the name of Daniel, God is my judge, will indeed be true. Because the fact of the matter is, is that God is indeed in control of the entire universe. He is the judge. And at the end of time, He will make all things right. He will put all the injustices right once again, and we can trust Him for that. 
You see, Jesus was in the world eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus feasted with prostitutes. He didn't run from the world, and yet Jesus was persecuted by the religious for being too absorbed into the culture of his day. At the same time, Jesus, Jesus was distinct. He was sinless. He lived the perfect life, and he was uncompromising. He called himself God and King of the universe, and the Romans hated this because of, because of, his, because of what he was saying. And so they persecuted and hung him on a cross. And yet Jesus purposed in his heart to die for us on a cross, to save us from hell and from sin. Yet it's the Father's sovereign plan that Jesus rise up and conquer the grave. See, the comfort is found in the name of Daniel. God is my judge. Because at the end of time, through Jesus Christ, all wrongs will be made right. All things will be made new. God will right all the wrongs at the end of time. And even though you are unfairly judged today, God will make all things right again. Even though people spit on you, call you names, there is comfort in knowing that our God holds the universe in His hands. And in some sense, if you live an uncompromised life, you will have it happily ever after. At the end of time, when you stand before the King of Kings, when you stand before the throne, friends, you will be able to stand before your judge and say, I, I lived an uncompromising life for you and for you alone. And look, here's the good news. The good news is this, if today you lived an, a, a compromised life, you, you kept sliding on things, you, you lived a life where you're slowly being assimilated into our culture, you lived a life where you didn't draw hard lines, well guess what the good news is, is that the blood of Jesus Christ washes you clean once again because Jesus purposed in His heart to die for your sins, because Jesus Christ spilled His blood upon the cross, you and I are now forgiven and given a new hope today to be able to say in your hearts, to, to commit once again to Jesus and say, I will live for you in an uncompromised way. And friends, I hope you receive this forgiveness. I hope you receive the blood of Christ as you live an uncompromised life. And look, for those of you who don't call yourselves Christians, who are seeking Jesus today. It is so easy to become a Christian. Yes, it is a hard life that we live. It is a hard life that we live, but the way into heaven is so simple. It is so easy. You don't have to do a bunch of good works. You don't have to begin by making all the wrong things right. All you have to do is call upon the name of Jesus and commit to Him as Lord and Savior of your life. Repent of your sins. Turn to Him and His blood will wash you clean once again. And if you want to commit your life to Christ once again, go ahead and click that I commit to Jesus button. Click that button for me if you want to commit your life to Christ. And if you have the extra courage, click it again because then a pastor will begin praying and walking with you through this journey. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you, God, for this passage. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live an uncompromised life. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord. Give us strength, God, to stand in the middle of our culture, to engage our culture, but to stand different and distinct from our world, Lord. Lord, I know how hard it is. I know for myself, Lord, I failed you so many times. And Lord, I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your grace once again. And Lord, I ask that you would forgive all of us once again, Lord, for compromising ourselves to this culture. Lord, we pray that you would give us bold courage, God, to be in our culture, to serve our cities, to love our cities, to serve our bosses, to, to be in our culture, and yet, God, to not compromise in any way, shape, or form. And so, Lord, we pray for all of those Christians today, God, and would you give them strength. And Lord, we pray for all those in this place, Lord, who don't know you yet. 
And Lord, we ask that you would give them faith today. Would you help them to believe in you today? Would you open up the eyes of their hearts, God, that they might receive you today? We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, at this time, if you would, would you rise for the benediction? And if you're unfamiliar with the benediction, it just means a good word. We want you to leave this place with a good word. And again, I want you to know this, that look, if you've been living a compromised life, if you've been in culture, but you've been living a compromised life, friends, I want to give you hope once again that you've been washed clean by the blood of Christ, that if you repent of your sins, that you again can have the fresh hope that Jesus Christ brings. And friends, you can know that you are washed clean, that you can recommit yourselves to Jesus today to live an uncompromising life to Him. And so here now the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father Almighty, and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen.